What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Alex Feinberg is an entrepreneur and a metabolic hacker. In this conversation, we talk about your metabolic health, the financial incentives of the fitness and food industry, why you're probably eating the wrong food, the wrong ingredients, and how that's making you fat and unhealthy. Alex and I had a great conversation. I learned a ton, and I now have a brand new routine on what to do in the gym, when I'm eating food, and also before I go to sleep and when I wake up in the morning. I hope you guys enjoy this one. After you listen to the episode, get on Twitter and let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, what you agree with, and what you disagree with. We enjoy the feedback. All right, let's get into the episode with Alex. I hope that you enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Alex here with me. Uh, I thought a great place to start would be you post all kinds of ridiculous photos on the internet of food that you're eating. I'm like, this dude's eating pizza, fried chicken, burgers, tacos, like everything that everyone wants to eat, but you're in great shape. Uh, And so as I've paid attention, I'm like, wait a minute, he knows something that the rest of us don't know. Now you're here. What is going on? Why are you eating all this stuff, but still able to stay in shape? Well, I think the first thing that people should know is I never expected to be 4% body fat. I never approached eating or training in a way where I thought I have to have abs. First and foremost, I decided in my early 20s that I was going to eat delicious food every meal of every day, no matter what. I think that that's my right as a reasonably successful individual to eat delicious food every meal of the day. Uh, What I found when I was working at Google in my late 20s is that there are a lot easier ways to achieve fitness results than what mainstream fitness tells you. Okay. Um, Namely, how you approach training and how you approach eating um, allows you to eat in a way that doesn't require you to count calories, doesn't require you to avoid these forbidden foods, doesn't require you to live in the gym, and just so happens to result in muscle gain and fat loss, which is what everybody's going for. Um, What I realized was that everybody has it wrong from a first principle standpoint. Most people in the fitness industry think that calories in, calories out is their god. As long as you're burning more calories than you're consuming, um, you will lose fat. And I found through experience and through working with many individuals that the human metabolism is is a little bit more complicated that, than that. Our endocrine system is more complicated than that. And you know, over years, I've found that as long as I'm eating protein-dominant real food um, with real clean ingredients... Uh, I don't have to count calories. I don't have to go hungry. I can eat literally pizza 10 times per month, as many times as I want, burgers, tacos, fried chicken, um, as long as I'm eating when I'm hungry. I'm not eating around mealtimes. I'm eating when my body tells me, hey, Alex, uh, I need food. Put it in me. So what does this look like in a given day? Like, What's an average day of what you eat and when you eat? Is there like a schedule to it or not really? There is no fixed schedule to it, but my body will – uh, tell me to eat at, at pretty predictable times, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll wake up. Um, I'm typically not that hungry early in the morning because mm-hmm. I eat late at night. I do what you're not supposed to do, which is eat before bedtime because mm-hmm. that's when my body tells me I'm hungry. Um, so commonly I won't have breakfast until maybe 11. I'll have maybe three eggs, three pieces of bacon, some you know organic bread. Um, and then lunch, a couple hours later, on average, could be four hours, could be two hours, depending on uh, how my resting metabolic rate is that day. 
Uh, I'll probably eat tacos, you know, uh, 10-ounce ribeye from Trader Joe's, steak tacos. Um, you know, that's going to have another 60, 70 grams of protein in it. And then very commonly for dinner, you know, I'll eat another pizza. And the difference between my pizza and the pizzas that you get from like a Domino's or a Pizza Hut is my pizzas have about as much protein as they have carbs. Whereas if you get your pizzas or you get this, you know, quote unquote junk food from traditional fast food restaurants, the margins are in the carbs, right? The margins are not in the meat. And so if you just rely on third parties to create your menu for you, you're going to end up having a carb-dominant diet. You're going to end up overeating because carbs tend to make you hungrier. Um, and your, you know, your natural appetite is going to become dysregulated to where you think you need to count calories in order to eat the right amount. Um, I discovered how to do that. I, I actually leaned on the intuition skills that I built as a professional baseball player to say, I need to trust my body, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure you went through this too, mm-hmm. playing sports you have to trust yourself. Mm-hmm. If you can't trust yourself, you can't succeed. Mm-hmm. And so I approach fitness and dieting and training in a, a way where I prioritize listening to the signals that my body tells me because I started out with the hypothesis that they're right. Mm-hmm. When you think of uh, pizza, let's start and go backwards. Yeah. Uh, the pizza has just as much protein as it does carbs. What does that look like? Like when do you make the pizza? Do you buy it from somewhere? And how do you think about making sure it has enough protein? Yeah, I, I make it. A lot of times I'll use other people's frozen bases uh, just because you can get those very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a brand I really like uh, named after me, but not after me. Alex's awesome sourdough. Trader Joe's has good pizza bases too. Main thing that I try to do is I try to put as much meat on as possible. So you're never going to be able to buy a a pizza that's already constructed with 80 to 100 grams of protein. Mm -hmm. But you can buy chicken breast, you can buy sausage, you can buy pepperoni. And, you know, if you put 8 to 16 ounces on there, um, it's going to taste good Mm -hmm. and it's going to have a lot of protein. So you're probably going to end up eating less of it than if you just got, you know, delivery from Papa John's and we're just Mm -hmm. watching football. Mm -hmm. So the pizza dough that you're buying is there anything special about it or it does it not have things or have certain things you're looking for like why that specific brand i like organic pizza um you know a lot of uh american carbs are made with glyphosate Mm -hmm. and we know glyphosate uh, produced by our friends at monsanto is a, a carcinogen and so a lot of people when they when they come to the u.s they end up having gut issues and i think a lot of it has to do with the pesticides that Mm -hmm. Uh, we spray on our crops. And so I try very hard to avoid uh, carbs with glyphosate or really any food with glyphosate. So I, I get organic uh, bread as much as I can. What, what does that mean, organic bread? Like I, I think people know organic, but they don't think of bread being organic or not organic. So like it just means that it doesn't have this glyphosate in it? Of, of Among other things, yeah. So, you know, if you're, if you're uh, producing bread, you got to grow wheat. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you're producing, uh, you know, you can grow Roundup ready wheat, which means you can grow the wheat and spray Roundup on it. And Roundup has, as uh, is is one of Monsanto's leading products, it has glyphosate. Um, they recently had a, a lawsuit about the actual effects of glyphosate, but let's just say we don't want to expose our bodies to excessive mm-hmm. glyphosate. And this is why when people go to Europe, one of the most fascinating things to me in all of the world at the moment 
is how many people over the summer that I know went to Europe, uh, they ate like shit, they ate pizza and breads and croissants and all kinds of craziness. Uh, they didn't really walk more than normal or anything like that. Uh, and they came back and like, I lost weight. Like yeah. I ate all these carbs and I lost weight. What's going on? And it goes back to, it's not the same type of carbs that maybe yeah. we're consuming here in America. Yeah. The, a lot of the pesticides that we use in the United States are illegal to, to use in other countries, not just the pesticides, you know, some of the products that we feed our pigs, uh, are, you know, legal in the United States and they help the pigs grow to a marketable, uh, weight. They're not legal in like 150 other countries. And so if you understand some of the economics around both food production and also fitness, you start to understand why so many people have had kind of miraculous success doing things that aren't supposed to work and have had no success doing things that are supposed to work. Mm -hmm. As you go to the grocery store, so you buy the pizza, mm -hmm. you get a bunch of just regular meat and you're basically putting it on there. The meat is uh, balancing out the carbs, but also it's cleaner carbs. Uh, and you're going to eat less because of the density of the meat that you're putting on the protein. Uh, when you think of tacos, the same principle, just like loaded yeah. up with as much protein as possible and the carbs, uh, while minimal, uh, are just outweighed by the protein that you're eating. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm going to make three tacos, you know, that's going to have about 50 grams of carbs. Uh, I'm going to use seed oil free tortillas that I get from HEB in Texas. Um, and I'm going to put about 10 ounces of Trader Joe's organic ribeye on there, which is going to have another 60 or so grams of protein. And so, you know, I'm not a big macro tracker guy, but I'm aware of what the, what I'm eating. And so I put a little cheese on there. Uh, there's a little bit of protein in the, in the uh, tortillas. So we're talking maybe 70, 75 grams of protein balanced out with 60 or so grams of carbs. A lot of times people will try to eat this way and they think they're eating more, but they're actually eating less because protein tends to be one of the most satiating macronutrients that you can eat. Mm -hmm. So you don't feel like, oh, well, I can only eat two tacos. It's like, I just eat as many as I want. Mm -hmm. And if I want to eat two, I eat two. If I want to eat three, I eat three. If I want to make it fourth, I make four. But I just listen to what my body's telling me. I don't eat at one o'clock because it's lunchtime. I eat lunch when I'm hungry for lunch. Mm -hmm. And so when you, when you end up aligning your food consumption with when your body tells you to eat, you know, if you don't have underlying metabolic issues that are really distorting your hunger signals and you're living life in accordance with a way that will help you produce viable hunger signals, most people tend to consume less food when mm -hmm. they do that. Well, I, I read somewhere that uh, I think you only want to eat maybe 1,200 calories if, if you're optimizing for longevity. Like the amount of calories that you should consume is so much less than the average American diet. Mm -hmm. And now that's a longevity specific type of uh, eating. If you just want to be healthy, mm -hmm. it's maybe not 1,200, but it's also not, you know, whatever, 3,000 calories, whatever people are eating not on the average American well, uh, diet. Not necessarily. So the okay. average American is eating probably, I don't even know how they know this because they're not, <laughs> what are they asking people? How many calories are you eating a day? How many burgers are you eating a day? But the data that I've read suggests that the average American eats like 3,500 calories a day, okay. which is insane. But like if you're just drinking a bunch of soda and eating chips all the time, I guess you could get up to 3,500. Um, <laughs> I've actually had success with, with uh, having people eat more. I think a lot of times what happens in the diet and fitness industry is people kind of neglect their health. They neglect what they look mm -hmm. like. They sort of kind of lie to themselves uh, that everything's okay until one day they look in the mirror and they say, oh, shit, I got to change something mm -hmm. and I got to change something fast. And because they've been neglecting it for the last two or three years, they don't know where to start. So they go Google something or they go on YouTube. Maybe they try a fad diet. Um, 
typically a lot of these uh, fad diets or fad programs say they do like a whole 30 or a you know 75 hard program or something where they're just you know training their body to not eat food right mm-hmm. all of these all Is of that these, what they do well they're they're not eating enough right like mm-hmm. a, what's a whole 30 diet you're not eating uh, you're not eating sugar I don't believe you're eating carbs you're just not eating things or not eating a lot of carbs um, you're not eating things that your body craves mm-hmm. right so so you're starting in a deprivi- uh, deprived state state of deprivation um, you end up uh, you know massively under consuming food and possibly over exercising um, your body doesn't like that and if you do it for long enough, your resting metabolic rate will will lower to acclimate to a, a lower food consuming environment. And so what ends up happening if you under consume food too much for too long is your metabolism slows down. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, sometimes I've worked with people who've been on, you know, salad diets and it's just like. Do a you, rabbit. Yeah. Like rabbits. <laughs> like sometimes if I work with a rabbit and I'm like, no, you should like eat a little bit more like a lion. Mm-hmm. They end up losing weight, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not supposed to happen. According so explain to, explain why that happens. My belief, and a lot of this is a work in progress. You know, mm-hmm. I figured out this fitness system years before I understood some of the science that mm-hmm. substantiated why it worked. Mm-hmm. I knew this worked back in 2017. Mm-hmm. I didn't start to know why this was working until 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021. Um, but what I think is going on is the endocrine system is massively underrated as as far as a driver for fat loss and for uh, for for you know muscle gain. Mm-hmm. And so what I think is happening is if you approach life in a way that teaches your endocrine system um, that you know we're in a very fixed environment, there's not that much food out here. Um, your resting metabolic rate slows down. And what a lot of people don't realize when they're trying to lose fat is even if you're working out intensely, 80% of the calories that you're burning are going to be burned outside of the gym, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of times people will say, well, I got to go do all this cardio. I got to you know go lift all this, this and that. Well, they're not thinking about how is this affecting the 80% of the calories that I'm burning outside of the gym. And the same thing is true with how they eat. You can actively withdraw calories from your diet, but that doesn't mean that there's going to be no impact on the amount of calories that you burn at rest. Mm -hmm. The most important two things for for long-term, let's say, fat management or weight management um, is figuring out how to burn uh, a lot of calories at rest um, in a training side and then on the diet side. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you're talking about this, you're like, okay, if you go to the gym, you work out for 30, 45 minutes, maybe you, you're really dedicated and you go for an hour, hour and 15 minutes, uh, you can burn however many calories, right? If I go and I work out for an hour, maybe I burn three, 400 calories, whatever the Apple watch says, depending on what I'm doing, mm-hmm. so maybe I can really stretch it and do five or 600 calories. But you're like, yeah, but the rest of the day, what's going on inside your body? And if you can jack up your metabolism, you can jack up kind of the calorie burn that's happening when you're not technically working out, that's going to have way more impact than yes. what you're doing for the hour long that you're at a gym. 100%. Okay, so how do you do it? So Tell the, me all the secrets. <laughs> so let me tell you what not to do first. Okay. The way you burn the most amount of calories during a workout is just doing cardio, mm-hmm. right? Or turning weightlifting into a cardio event. Mm-hmm. If you're always moving, you're always going to be burning calories. So mm-hmm. if I just went on the treadmill and ran, say I ran eight miles in an hour, right, which would be a 730 pace, I'm probably going to end up burning like 1,200 calories, 1,100 calories mm-hmm. doing, doing that 60-minute run. Mm-hmm. But when I get out of the gym, I'm not going to really be 
burning any more calories. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is sort of like having a high income and spending it every month. It doesn't really. Well, do why is it because you just ran right? Yeah. You're you're working out. Why is your body not going to continue to burn calories afterwards if your the workout is running? Endurance doesn't translate into a higher metabolic burn yeah. as much as intensity does. Okay, and so if rather than uh, running continuously for sixty minutes, you maybe you did interval sprints. So maybe maybe you ran one mile worth of interval sprints uh, on off, and and that took ten or fifteen minutes. And then for the other forty five minutes, maybe you did uh, some warm up sets, obviously, and then you did four sets of squats. Um, literally if that's all you did, you'd have better results than if you just ran 60 minutes in a row for, for, for most, um, trained men at the very least. Why is it better? Is it ju- literally just the intensity? Do you have to squat heavyweight, lightweight? Yeah. Like how, how does, how does that work? So you need to, uh, prioritize speed and force mm-hmm. in your workouts. And so if you're sp- uh, prioritizing speed and force inherently, you need to rest longer in between sets. So if you approach, say you're doing squats and you're going to do four sets of squats, um, a lot of people will do 60 second rest, 120 second rest, similar rest periods to what they might do in like a Barry's boot camp class. Unfortunately, if you're doing 60 second rests on squats, you're not squatting very heavy. You're not um, giving your body the message to say, hey, I need to build muscle to be able to accomplish this workout. And so guess what? Muscle's metabolically expensive. Your body's not going to build it unless you're giving it the signal that, hey, dude, uh, you got to put muscle on me. The, only, the, the easiest way to give it that signal that, hey, dude, you need to like add muscle is by lifting progressively heavier weights. But you can't lift progressively heavier weights if you're constantly on short rest periods, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, or maybe you're squatting three times a week, as some people will do when they're starting out on their fitness journey. In order to give your body the proper signals to build muscle, you need to rest a lot, which is why the, you know, if you take a sustainable approach to training, you don't need to kill yourself in the gym. In fact, killing yourself in the gym will set you back in in as much as as you want to lose fat. So you need to rest. You need to rest both between workouts. You need to rest between sets. You don't need to do a ton of stuff in the gym, but what you need to do needs to be done well. And you need to feel your body in such a way that you can perform at a high level when you're training. Mm-hmm. When you go to the gym, how many times a week do you go and for how long? Um, I'm going every other day. Yeah. Um, I go for a couple hours when I go mm-hmm. because I'm old now. I'm 36. I, uh, it takes a while for me to warm up. Mm-hmm. You know, in my 20s, I could just go bang out. And it's like everything's good. And, and now it's not. Uh, I got to do mobility work. Um, and I, you know, I don't have an office to go to, uh, at nine or 10 AM. So I can just kind of take my time. Mm-hmm. Um, but in those two hours, you know, I might be doing 12 minutes worth of cardio, mm-hmm. right? 60 seconds on 30 seconds off times eight measured. Um, and then I might do 20 working sets of lifting, mm-hmm. right? Where I'll take, I'll do warm ups, but you know, if I'm doing a, a working set of squats, you know, I'm doing four minutes in between sets. Mm-hmm. So it, it might take me 10 minutes to warm up for squats. And then it might take me 16 minutes to do four sets of squats. And so it's taken me 26 minutes essentially to perform four sets. Mm -hmm. And if you compare that to how most people train, most people might be doing 18 sets in those 26 minutes. I'm doing four, but I'm doing four in such a way that my body's given the signal that it needs to hold muscle, Mm -hmm. which gives me, you know, muscle is effectively um, the passive income earner of the metabolic system. Mm -hmm right? If you're talking to a financial planner, they want to say, okay, we want to get your, your passive income high because that, you know, it, it's a lot easier to build wealth when your passive income is high. Well, 
it's a lot easier to burn calories when your lean muscle mass is high. Mm -hmm. It's the same analogy applied to a different area. Mm -hmm. And when you are doing the four sets, are you just lifting the heaviest weight possible? Are you progressively increasing, decreasing during the sets? Like, how do you think about what weight you're putting on when squatting in, in that scenario? So I want to be able to complete all the reps that I've assigned for myself. So if I'm doing four sets of five, um, if I do as heavy weight as possible in the first set, I can't lift you know, as, he as heavy on the second set. So I'm going to be picking probably somewhere between 75 and 80% of my one rep max. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that's going to be very hard. It's going to be very hard. Um, if it's to failure, it's likely going to be the last rep of the last set. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not trying to take myself to failure multiple times per month, but maybe once or twice per month mm -hmm. um, per lift, I can go to failure. But mm -hmm. Most days, it's I just want this to be hard. Mm -hmm. I want it to be as hard as it can possibly be while not detracting from my desire to show up in the gym tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And when you are doing this, so you go, you run for, you know, it's called 15 minutes or so, you do the warm-ups, you do the squats. Is that the only exercise that you'll do or will you then supplement it with other things? No, I'll do accessory work. So, you know, I'll as I get older and as I get stronger, I can't do the same training that – um, is programmed for most people. And so, you know, if you end up going to a powerlifting gym or a bodybuilding gym, the great thing about these gyms is they have cool equipment that allows you to train your muscles very similarly to traditional barbell movements, but doesn't put the same stress on your lower back or on your knees or on, on your hips or on various joints that will ultimately be, uh, the weak link to you, you know, continuing to develop uh, as you get older and stronger. And so after I get done with my heavy squats, I'll do accessory quad movements. So, you know, maybe body weight, uh, Bulgarian split squats, which is like a single leg squat variant. Um, but I'm not adding weight to it. I could add weight to it, but the purpose of doing body weight Bulgarian split squats is more just to get range of motion, blood flow, tendon ligament strengthening. It's not to try to push myself to failure. Mm -hmm. um, after doing that, I'll do a variant of a Romanian deadlift. I want to train my posterior chain. Mm -hmm. So glutes, hamstrings, lower back, except I'm going to be doing that on a machine called a reverse hyper, which is something that a guy named Louis Simmons, um, who uh, founded and ran Westside Barbell for many years and trained many successful athletes, uh, including Larry Bird. Um, when Larry Bird had his back injury, he got him on the reverse hyper, which is essentially very similarly structured to a Romanian deadlift in that you are targeting your glutes, your hamstrings, your lower back, but you're not putting that stress on your lower spine. Um, your, your upper body's fixed, your legs are swinging as a pendulum. Mm -hmm. So you can get a very similar workout without compressing your spine, which is something mm -hmm. that you got to be careful about as you get stronger and older. Um, after doing that, I'll go and do some, uh, more accessory work, focusing on hamstring isolation, adductor, abductor movement. So like the, the yes, no machine. Um, and that's it. You know, it takes me a while to do it because I'm resting in between sets. And will you uh, stack these so you'll move from, you know, uh, machine to machine or will you go and you'll do all the abductor work and then you'll go do all the hyper work and then you'll go do uh, another lift? Or will you actually try to uh, combine the exercise in more of like a circuit type uh, environment? Only the last few exercises will I superset or do more more circuit based work. So the main lift, like I'll, I'm never going to superset. Uh, around a compound movement. Like I see people at the gym doing deadlifts and like supersetting them with like pushups. I'm like, what are you doing? That's like, you're just trying to make it really hard and not get better because that's exactly what you're going to do. Um, so I'm never going to be supersetting, uh, especially uh, a lower body compound movement with any other movement. Um, and, and the reverse hypers, that's a hard movement too. I'm not going to be supersetting that. 
uh, for the most part, but like hamstring work, adductor, abductor work, which is like groins and hips for people uh, who, who might not have the kinesiology background. Um, I'll superset that, right? I'll go back and forth. Mm -hmm. And I know you've talked about like the financial incentives. A lot of times people talk about on the food side, but mm -hmm. the fitness side, you've got this like theory that there's financial incentives as to why the gyms and the fitness industry actually want to keep you unhealthy yeah. rather than make you healthier. What is that? Well, if you think about my business as an investable business, my business is a very bad investable business. It's a good business for me personally. It makes me you know decent money uh, month after month. But when you're thinking about a, a business that you can invest in, you want customers who are coming back month after month, year after year, right? Mm -hmm. I tend to be able to solve people's fitness problems in like three to six months, sometimes sooner, sometimes like 30 days. Mm -hmm. Where's my recurring revenue if I'm solving uh, what could otherwise be a lifetime problem in 30 to 90 days? Mm -hmm. So if you think about most uh, most mainstream gyms or whatever, or, or weight loss programs like, uh, you know, Weight Watchers or something like that, um, the good part about them is they do work, right? If you go to Barry's boot camp and you're out of shape, you will get in better shape likely for, for several weeks. Um, the downside of these programs is they don't feel sustainable mm -hmm. for, for the user. And so what happens is the user does it for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 180 days, has success, burns out, stops doing it because they're burned out, blames themselves mm -hmm. rather than the program. Oh, you know, if I just stuck to this training program longer, it was working so well, but life got in the way, I'll go back and I'll do it next year. And guess what? Next year it's going to work too mm -hmm. for the 90 days that you're doing it or 120 days that you're doing it and then you fall off again. Oh man, I was, I was such a bad boy. You know, I'll, I, I promise I'm going to get it together, together next year. You sign up again, mm -hmm. go back to him again for four or five, six months. And so people think that their relationship with a, a training program or a diet um, needs to require like an unsustainable amount of work. And so when that work isn't sustained, blame themselves, mm -hmm. go back, pay the piper again the next year. Mm -hmm. um, with, with my system, if you learn how to train and you learn how to eat, you don't really need um, any close coaching or you don't need to pay continual subscription fees uh, month after month, year after year. And so, you know, I've, I've worked with people who are obese, pre-diabetic, had sugar cravings and within two, three months, all that's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'll pay me like 500 bucks for that. And it's like, wait, the, the mainstream medical industry, you know, would charge somebody like $300,000 to accomplish mm -hmm. the same thing. And it would take 15 years and they'd consider it a success, Right. And so the, the more they can keep you as a uh, actively paying customer, you know, how does a, a fitness company, how does a gym maximize the lifetime value, not a gym, but like a, a, a training system, how does it maximize the lifetime value of each user? Well, it needs to keep them paying money month after month. How can it do that? Well, it doesn't teach them how to actually do it themselves. Mm -hmm. keeps them dependent on the system, mm -hmm. keeps them dependent on a system that kind of works, but doesn't work sustainably. What about like the gyms in terms of, uh, you know, the joke is always like, Hey, there's only two things that are really hard to quit. It's Comcast and the gym, right? Like they just don't let you leave. Uh, or also, uh, you'll see all sorts of, 
uh, things where they'll do, you know, a month free or whatever to get people in the door and they know, hey, they're never going to come, but it's only 20 bucks. Yeah. And so they'll keep the subscription because like, oh, I'm going to start next week type, mm-hmm. you know, behavior. W- what's going on there with the what kind of financial incentives of the gyms themselves? Well, they know that when people make fitness decisions, they, they tend to be in a, a place where they're not very happy about themselves. They're highly suggestible, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a little bit emotional. And so if they put a piece of paper in front of you, say, sign this, like a lot of people are going to sign. But they also know come February, a lot of people, have, they get caught up in life again, mm-hmm. right? Their, their New Year's resolutions uh, are, are resolutions of yesterday. And so they get put on the back burner. And so if you understand, you know, gyms have resource management, just like a parking lot, just like uh, an air, uh, airline, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the difference between a, a gym and an airline is the gym's not going to be at max capacity every, you know, every minute of, of mm-hmm. every day. It can't be. And so gyms just need to make sure that they have enough equipment for users at peak hours. And if they realize like, oh, actually, you know, only 10% of our members are going to be coming during peak hours, we can sell a thousand memberships, even though our gym is only, you know, 300 square feet. This is kind of an exaggeration, but like we don't need the commercial real estate space to accommodate for as many memberships as we're selling. We want to mm-hmm. sell as many memberships as possible and ideally service as few as possible, but just enough to where they keep paying us money. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Arculus. Arculus is the next generation crypto and NFT cold storage wallet that combines one of the world's strongest security protocols with the easiest to use form factor and app. They have three factor authentication and you can use your pin and the Arculus key card along with biometrics. They don't compromise your holdings by requiring a USB port, charging or browser connections. With Arculus, you're protected from hackers and institutions freezing your access. Learn more today and buy it now at getarculus.com. You can use promo code POMP to save 15%. Getarculus.com, use promo code POMP. And remember, with Arculus, it's your keys, your crypto. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer, and the 8sleep pod is the ultimate sleep machine. The pod is the only sleep technology that dynamically cools and heats each side of the bed to maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. With the pod, you can start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. What is the result? Clinical data shows that 8sleep users experience up to 19% increase in recovery, 32% improvement in sleep quality, and up to 34% more deep sleep. How do I know it works? I sleep on it every single night, and it works so well that I beg the founders to let me invest in the company. Go check them out today at 8sleep.com slash pomp to start sleeping cool this summer and save $150 on the pod. Again, 8sleep.com slash pomp, and you get $150 off when you use code pomp. This episode is brought to you by Alto IRA. They can help you invest in Bitcoin and crypto in a tax advantage way. That helps you preserve your hard-earned money. Alto's Crypto IRA lets you invest in Bitcoin and over 200 other different coins and tokens, and it has all the same tax advantages of your traditional IRA. There's no setup or account fees, and it's all you need to do, invest in crypto tax-free. Let me repeat that again. You can invest in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies tax-free. So are you ready to take your investments to the next level? Diversify like the pros and trade without tax headaches. Open an Alto Crypto IRA to invest in Bitcoin and crypto tax-free. Go to altoira.com slash pomp. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A dot com slash pomp. Start investing today. And then what about like, I'll call it like the ed, uh, education slash entertainment slash fitness industry. So I'm thinking Pelotons, the Tonals, those types of devices. Um, 
maybe they're more entertainment than they are education. Mm -hmm. And then there's like this fitness component. Do those seem to work for people? Do people just buy those kind of like the treadmill of, you know, yesteryear and then it turns into a clothes rack in their house? Like what's going on there? Well, if it works, it works, right? I'm not going to ever tell somebody to stop doing something that works. Um, The challenge with and more Peloton than than the tonal is um, Peloton workouts can be hard. Like I'm, I'm not going to take away from, from the fact that they're challenging. Um, what I will, uh, argue with is, are they effectively challenging, right? Where one of the challenges with, with workouts and, uh, and workout evaluations is most people will, uh, ascertain the efficacy of a workout by how hard it felt, how sore they got and how much they sweat. And guess what? A Peloton can check all those boxes. So can a Barry's bootcamp class. So can CrossFit. Uh, unfortunately, those three metrics are not the metrics that ultimately are highly, highly correlated with fat gain and or fat loss and muscle gain, right? And so what I've found with Pelotons and other lower intensity, longer duration movements, and I say lower intensity, like you're not, it's not the same intensity as sprinting 200 meters. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of guys find it challenging to get really defined abdominals doing those. Mm-hmm. You can get in plenty good shape for from a longevity standpoint, from a cardiac health standpoint, only doing Peloton work. But it's unlikely that you're going to want to rip your shirt off at a pool party just, you know, going on the Peloton for even an hour a day. Mm-hmm. And is that because it's all cardio based and there's not a lot of uh, actual weightlifting? Yes, there's there's that. And, the, and then the fact that the cardio itself is only using your legs. And so the most effective cardio uses your full body, whether it's running or uh, assault biking. Uh, And so assault bikes have a few different trade names. They can go by the Rogue Assault Bike. Rogue Echo Bike is another alternative. Schwinn Airdyne is another alternative. But it's essentially the bike that where you use your hands at at the same time as you're pedaling. Mm -hmm. Um, That will allow you to attain a a much higher heart rate uh, than a legs-only bike. Mm -hmm. And what I've found is... You know, the the harder I can push myself, the closer I can push myself to my VO2 max during training uh, is very, very highly correlated with getting leaner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so rather than focusing on like, oh, I want to go in a calorie deficit, I'm going to go on a diet to lose fat. I just focus on how am I going to increase my cardiac output? Mm-hmm. Um, how am I going to train cardio at as high of an intensity as possible for a short duration of time? Um, and how do I make sure my metrics that I'm tracking are continually getting better so that I know I'm I'm improving in my conditioning. And I can't really do that on a Peloton or a legs-only bike. I fucking hate the assault bike. I, I've never told you this story before. Uh, when I was in college, I blew out my knee. And uh, if you were hurt, you had to go uh, on the sideline the entire practice, and they made you work out. And the whole thing was like, keep guys from basically bullshitting. Like, right, get, right. Get it's going to be harder than practice. Yes. So it, let's let's see how hurt a, you are. A hundred percent, right? And so like, you're like watching and you're like, oh, look at all those guys just standing there waiting to like, you know, uh, they're getting water and I'm over here working my ass off. And so for months, uh, I couldn't do anything with my legs. So pretty much 90%, 80% of the exercises they were having people on the sidelines who were injured do, I couldn't do. And so the punishment that I would do every single day was I'd get on the assault bike and would not pedal. And I would just have to do it with my arms only. Me, me and that assault bike, we got problems still to this day. <laughs> but that's, that's the thing with training. That's the thing with training is, is oftentimes the thing, you know, if you look at like a, a frat bro, right? Mm-hmm. Frat bros tend to, you know, have 
they drink, so they have a little bit more fat on them mm-hmm. than they want them want to, but they also go to the gym regularly. Mm-hmm. And so you, you drill down. You're like, okay, you're training regularly. Your diet's not great, but you're training regularly. So like what what's going on there? And almost certainly the frat bros are neglecting training their legs and they're not doing cardio, mm-hmm. right? So if you go in the gym, you just lift your upper body. Well, your upper body as a man is only going to carry about uh, 45, 40% of your, your total muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And so by neglecting uh, training your lower body, you're missing out on a majority of the metabolic benefit from lifting. And if you're not doing cardio, um, what I found with cardio is, and I didn't know this when I first got started on that path, but as I've gotten deeper into the fitness game, um, and, and delved further into my, uh, endocrine hypothesis for why, uh, why people lose fat is I, I really have found both with myself and other people that I've worked with and then studies that also exist that if you train your, your cardio at close to max capacity and it doesn't need to be long, mm-hmm. right? But it does need to be close to max capacity. What ends up happening for a lot of people is, uh, their hunger gets regulated better. Mm. So it's a lot easier to eat the right amount. Like people think that they get way hungrier from doing cardio. That's typically from doing cardio at a, a lower or moderate intensity for a long period of time. If you do cardio for, at a lower, moderate intensity for a long period of time, you'll almost certainly get hungrier. And this is people who like go on a 10 mile run at a 10 yeah. minute pace. Right. And they're like, oh, I ran 10 miles today. And you're like, kind of. Yeah. Uh, yes, you did run the 10 miles, but your heart rate never went above you know, 120. You ran 10 miles, but you're going to eat it back or you're going to go hungry tonight. Mm -hmm. Right. So unless you're willing to perpetually be hungry and suffer the effects of that, because as we talked about earlier, that's going to disrupt your, your metabolism. Um, it's not sustainable. Whereas for a lot of people, myself included, um, if you have an incredibly intense workout, sometimes you're less hungry. Mm-hmm. right? That's not supposed to happen based on the calories in calories out model. It, it assumes that hunger and uh, training intensity scale linearly, and they don't at the tail end. If you can train at a high intensity, and again, it doesn't need to be for a long duration, but if you can train at a high intensity, um, what happens with a lot of people is their appetite becomes better regulated. I'm hungrier on off days frequently than I am on training days. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, I happen to believe, and there there is some research out there possibly corroborating it, but we know research can change, is that um, the higher intensity you do do cardio, uh, you know, it does have an impact on your leptin levels, which have an impact on your hunger. Mm -hmm. So if you become less hungry from training a certain way, that's like a shortcut to dieting. You don't have to consciously not eat. You just have to listen to what your body's telling you. And if it's telling you to eat less, you're naturally going to be on a diet. Mm -hmm. So really it's eat high protein. Uh, don't eat, you know, the the horrible ingredients for you, uh, lift weights and do high intensity cardio and you don't have to do it for that long. Is that like a, a fair, uh, uh, kind of synopsis of it? Uh, and eat when you're hungry, stop eating when you're full. Um, be careful about sugar consumption. Mm-hmm. Eat the amount of sugar that you crave, but not more. And that's for, for most people. If you have uh, you know, recurring sugar cravings, you probably can't follow that model. But for most people who don't have recurring sugar cravings, it's, you know, if you're really craving a dessert, eat it, right? But eat the amount that you need to satisfy that craving. And once that craving's been satisfied, stop eating it. Mm-hmm. You know, be okay throwing away food. Yeah. Right? People feel like, oh, you know, I paid for this, I gotta eat it. It's like, uh, yeah, but you're gonna go pay a trainer on Friday to get you unfat. So like yeah, you paid $30 for the meal and you may be throwing away $15 worth of it, but you're going to go pay a trainer hundred bucks on Friday. So like, what are we doing here? We're working against ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's relatively true from the diet side. You know, the three bite rule. 
No. I, I have a friend uh, who will go unnamed. He's like, uh, yeah, I, I eat dessert. Like, sure. He's like, anyone asks me, yeah, I'll have dessert. He goes, three bites, though. He goes, because the first bite makes you want to have a little bit more. The second bite, you're like, damn, this is good. And the third one's like, all right, I'm done. Yeah. And he's like, I just have three bites, no matter what it is. He didn't care if you gave him a, a whole pie or whatever. Yeah. Like, he's going to eat three bites, and then he won't eat any more. And he's like, those three bites satisfy whatever I need, and I move on. Well, I approached sugar like a drug many years ago. You know, this was when I was working at Google where I was like, you know, uh, I started having a lot of success kind of switching my training style to the way I do now um, in about 2014. And that served as a catalyst to say, well, you know, what else can I experiment with in my diet? Oh, you know, I'm eating these M&Ms every afternoon. Do I need to? Oh, what happens if I, you know, mix my M&Ms with almonds? What happens if I, you know, progressively overload the almonds relative to the M&M. So, you know, I'm starting with a one to one ratio and then it's a one to two ratio and then it's a one to five ratio. And I realized that like sugar is like a drug in the sense that you will love the amount you eat, mm -hmm. whether that amount is, you know, a half pound a day or an ounce a day, like that's the amount that your body likes. And so it's just like what, if you want to be the happiest person possible, what's the optimal amount of alcohol to consume? It's like, well, the people who consume 10 drinks a day, which is the top decile of Americans, they're probably not as happy as the people who are consuming like one drink a day, mm -hmm. right? People who drink one drink a day on average, they might be happier than the people who drink zero drinks a day because they're like going out, they're being social occasionally. Mm -hmm. So I looked at sugar very similarly to any other drug where it's like, okay, consuming zero is not sustainable. I don't want to be a sugar teetotaler, but consuming more than a minimal amount gives no value to my life. So what do you eat? Like what, what sugar do you consume? Do you just like pig out on ice cream? Do you eat Snickers bars? Like what do you eat? Um, it tends to be healthier ingredients. So like huge chocolate. I love huge chocolate. Mm -hmm. um, That's the one that comes in like the brown yeah, like paper yeah. bag looking thing. Yeah. yeah. It's Gucci chocolate prices. You know, you got to be shelling out like eight bucks for these bars. But, you know, if your chocolate's expensive, you can't eat that much of it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is there? Like what, what's so good about that chocolate? Uh, there's only about seven or eight grams of sugar per ounce. Or if you compare that to a, a traditional candy bar, a traditional candy bar will have like 15 to 20 grams per ounce. Mm. Um, so it's got a lot less sugar. Uh, it's got much cleaner ingredients. So, you know, it doesn't have like the, the soy lecithin as a, to act as an emulsifier. Um, so it doesn't have like a lot of the ingredients that people will consume that may have adverse uh, effects on their metabolism and their mm. endocrine system. And uh, but primarily it's the lower sugar. And then what about uh, uh, a lot of the brands that make protein shakes or uh, uh, C4 or NO Explode or like all those different brands? They now have come out with uh, uh, peanut butter cups and like all these types of what appear to be desserts or candies, but they're you know less than one gram of sugar they claim and fifteen grams of protein or whatever their like you know pitches. Sure, is that all bullshit or, or are these uh, companies actually figuring this out? Uh, I haven't looked at the ingredient list because I don't eat that many supplements, but um, I'll give you the pros and cons of the best case scenario. The best case scenarios are using clean ingredients. So they're using very similar ingredients to a huge chocolate and they're just mixing in a protein powder with it. Mm -hmm. Ideally, uh, a clean source, either a, a, you know an organic whey protein. They're probably not using an organic whey protein. Collagen protein, collagen peptide pro protein. You can make delicious desserts. Um, with, with those ingredients. I have some in my recipe book where it's like, I eat dessert. I just, you know, try to, uh, have a little bit of protein when I can, um, and not that much sugar. Um, the challenge that, that they have as well as the challenge with every artificial sweetener is I have found for me personally, that artificial sweeteners actually make me crave sugar. Mm -hmm. And so you might not be eating sugar 
when you eat that artificially sweetened peanut butter mm-hmm. cup. But if you're eating something that makes you crave sugar later, is it, you know, the, the impacts of that meal cannot be confined to that meal because it's going to dictate what you're going to be eating later mm-hmm. that day. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't report having their cravings change, like substantially altered by uh, consuming a, uh, a stevia or a, a, a sh- sweetener alternative. But I think they're wrong. I think they just don't understand the signals that their body's giving them. And I actually think that a much larger percentage of the population has um, their sugar cravings changed with the addition of artificial sweeteners. So I, I would not advocate eating those, uh, you know, ad nauseum. Like, what, what about fruit? They say fruit got a lot of sugar. You're not supposed to eat too much fruit. Yeah. Well, I Is think that true? Uh, if you're eating like whole fruit, it's probably okay. Like right. uh, if you go to the grocery store, I do this, right? I don't know, maybe tell me I'm an idiot. I go to the grocery store and, you know, they got like the little uh, plastic, you know, yeah, I, I touch the plastic. Uh, but in it, they got all the fruits cut up and it's like a fruit bowl. Yeah. And I, I grab it and I eat like a whole one every day. Yeah. Is that, is that good? I think that's fine. I mean, the, the challenge. It tastes good as shit. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's one thing if you're putting it into a blender and you're blending out like 64 ounces of smoothies, of fruit smoothies in a day. I don't think you're doing that. No, no, no. If we're talking about like real food, you know, unless, unless your consumption is just at the extreme tail end which I don't think it is based on what you're saying, it's probably going to be okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think of it as uh, there's probably is some sugar, you know, wh- whatever. Like there's something in it that definitely uh, – I'm like, man, I could eat a chocolate bar or I could eat this. It right. feels like this is healthier than the chocolate bar. Uh, and then also – um, a lot of times it, like that's a snack, mm-hmm. right? So I, it's like, I feel like I am hungry, but I'm not hungry enough to eat an entire meal. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that like, kind of like holds me over almost yeah. to some degree. Um, and, uh, I usually eat it in the, uh, kind of middle afternoon also, yeah. because I don't want to drink coffee right. at like three thirty four o'clock, but I'm like, Oh, I could use like a little bit more energy. Right. And so I tend to eat, you know, like fruit or something like that, which yeah. I guess it just works for me. Well, if it works for you, it works for you. And I think that's a great point that you brought up, you know, comparing it to a chocolate bar. It's like, oh, this is healthier than a chocolate bar. A lot of the framework of my intuitive diet was actually influenced by, you know, my background in investing, um, being an economics major at Vanderbilt, and uh, really approaching it like, okay, what additional value is this thing, is this food choice giving me relative to the alternative and Mm -hmm. at what cost? Mm -hmm. And is it worth it? Oh, if this fruit tastes... 95% 95% as good as the Snickers bar, but only impacts my body. Let's say, let's say it does impact your body negatively, for example's sake. But the negative impact to my body is only 10% of what the Snickers bar is. It's worth it. I should choose that fruit all the time. Yeah. What about coffee? I love coffee. Yeah. How many coffee, how much coffee do you drink a day? Well, today I've only had one, but I'm um, <laughs> uh, like in an average day, uh, probably two or three. Two or three cups of coffee. Yeah. So that's like uh, maybe 350 milligrams of caffeine, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been trying to think of uh, what the optimal amount of caffeine is. It's a very long story, but uh, I'll make it quick. Uh, I think a large at Starbucks, I know it's not called large, but whatever, the large thing, um, has like 400 milligrams of caffeine, supposedly, if you Google it. But I'm like, there's no way this actually has 400 milligrams of caffeine. But if you Google, that's what it says. (laughs) Yeah. Right? And so if you drink that in the morning, like you pretty much are tapped out for the day. Like you probably shouldn't drink more caffeine later. Right. Uh, but what I usually do is if I drink that, then I'll have like a shot of espresso or something later 
around like one o'clock or so. Right. So then you start playing and you're like, well, actually, maybe you shouldn't drink the large coffee if it does actually have the 400 milligrams, which is questionable. Uh, maybe you should just drink like two or three shots of espresso, yeah. which, you know, 90 milligrams or so of caffeine per shot. Like, okay, now you're still in that 350, 400 range, but you're actually like spreading it out through the day, but you're not pushing too far into the late afternoon where then it affects your sleep. Right. So I, I tell people that the optimal amount of coffee or caffeine to consume is the amount right up until it starts affecting your hydration or sleep. And that's going to be different person to person. Some mm -hmm. people might might consume 150 milligrams of, of caffeine, which is like a cup, cup and a half of coffee at noon, and they might not be able to go to sleep that night. Well, it's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, you can't do that. That's too mm -hmm. much for you. Other people can drink coffee and like go to bed right after. Now, I doubt their sleep is as deep when they do that, but fine. If they don't know, if, the, if there's not an obvious adverse impact mm -hmm. to drinking coffee, um, then it's it's most likely okay. And if you look at a lot of the studies, like the the studies that tell told people to not drink coffee, they didn't uh, isolate for alcohol consumption. So what they found was that oh, if you drink a lot of coffee, you die sooner. It's like yeah, because like the people who were drinking a lot of coffee were hungover every morning. Yeah, but <laughs> so, I also but I also just saw a study that says the exact opposite. It says like basically if you drink caffeine, uh, it could extend your life. Right. So like I kind of feel like the scientists are full of shit because they do these different studies and they come to you know same study different conclusions. Like what's going on? Here? Well, they're they're improperly isolating for variables. So mm -hmm. if you if you look at caffeine consumption relative to longevity. Um, it's possible that it's negatively correlated. In fact, it's probably negatively correlated to longevity. You think so? Except for the fact that when you account for the fact that a lot of the people who are drinking a lot of the coffee are hungover every morning, right? So if you just say, okay, person, if you just look at the cohort that drinks like under seven uh, alcoholic drinks a week, and then you look at their caffeine consumption and you compare their longevity, what you likely see is a positive correlation between caffeine consumption and longevity. But if you include everybody, well, the people who consume the highest amount of caffeine are also commonly consuming the highest amount of alcohol. So the reason why their longevity is diminished is not because of the caffeine, it's because of the alcohol. But if you mix them all together in the same study, it's going to say, oh, wow, look at like, ooh, it looks, looks like the high caffeine consumers are going to die young. Alcohol makes you dehydrated? That's one thing it does. And caffeine makes you dehydrated? Yep. So people who drink a lot of alcohol at night and then drink a lot of coffee during the day, are they just on like a wheel of dehydration and they're like severely and uh, uh, just persistently dehydrated? That's one thing that they are. They're probably also persistently fatigued because if you drink a lot of um, alcohol at night, your sleep is going to be at much lower quality. Mm -hmm. And then during the day, you know, you're, you're loading up with caffeine. You're going to just feel like you're running on mm -hmm. empty by the time you get to the, you know, the afternoon. How many hours do you sleep at night? Um, six or seven. I, I try oh. to do better than that. Damn, but six or seven. Yeah, hey, I want to do more. Eight. Well, you know, I got, you know, genetics to work through. Um, <laughs> I stopped sleeping well when I was like 17 years old. Um, because you're not working hard enough during the day. Yeah, it's got to be. That's got to be. If you, it. Uh, I forget who said it. One of the, like the Stokes or whatever basically said something to the effect of like, if you have a full day, then you have a full night of sleep. So you just got to work hard and then you sleep better. Yeah. It, well, the, the challenge is <laughs> the challenges come when you're lying in bed thinking about the full day of work that you have the next day, and yeah, then you start, know, things start know, spinning, know, and know, just, know, you just know, don't know, go I'm to bed. Shit. All right. So, uh, so the caffeine makes sense. Uh, what about pre-workout? Uh, when you and I have known each other for a long time now, uh, when I was, I don't know, maybe starting around the age of like 16 or 17, like I was in, in high school, I was uh, playing sports and I was like, this weightlifting thing, that seems like that's important. <laughs> uh, 
I'm a young kid. How do I get as jacked as possible before I go into the weight room and then just do everything? Like that was literally my mentality. I was an idiot. It worked. I, I would take whatever, life. whatever supplement you could find. If it was in the store and it could get me jacked up to go into the weight room, I was taking it. I tried it. Uh, and so when I got to college, like you get smarter, right? You start to understand like, okay, like this makes me super jittery. This doesn't, whatever. And um, maybe I actually didn't get that much smarter. Uh, the, the two things that most guys were taking in college um, was uh, uh, NO Explode. Yeah. And uh, C4. And there was like debates of like, oh, the NO explode. Yeah, like it, your face tingles and like the, the arms are tingling or whatever. Uh, the C4 was like cleaner, but guys would argue like the C4 didn't work because I couldn't feel it. Right. My guess is that both of these are horrible for you. But like, how do you like, how do you underwrite uh, pre-workout in terms of it being healthy, not healthy, worth it, not worth it? It's like a total scam. Like, like, <laughs> you know, do these things help? Like maybe, you know, I've, I've read, you know, there's nothing else that, that made my face tingle like that before. Right, right, right. It's like, okay, so I don't take any of these supplements. I've never taken any of these supplements and people online think I take steroids all the time. So if, if you look at like what is important to execute in a, a training plan or a diet and fitness lifestyle, it's like what you eat and how you train is way more important than the supplements you take. Mm. Um, sure, if you take uh, creatine, whether creatine HCL or creatine monohydrate, studies show that that should positively affect your gains. Um, that being said, you know I got to four percent, five percent body fat just taking a multivitamin and like mm. fish oil, mm. right? And my only pre workout was coffee, and it mm. still is my only pre workout is coffee. You think that pre workout is a bigger scam than the multivitamins? Um. I feel like the multivitamins are scams too. You're telling me they packed 64 different vitamins into that little pill? Well, I'm telling you that I, <laughs> I take it with no expectation of its efficacy because yeah, it take yeah. it costs 25 cents or yeah, 10 yeah. cents or whatever. And I think, okay, worst case scenario, I piss it out. Yep. Right. So I'll pop that in the morning. No big deal. Mm -hmm. And if some of it sticks, it sticks. And if mm -hmm. most of it doesn't, that's okay too. Um, with the, with the pre-workout, you know, that gets in people's psychology where they're like, oh, I need to have my NO explode. Otherwise I can't train. It's yep. like, dude, you can train. Like, and, and if you have coffee in your system, well, you know, I know explode has caffeine, but like if you have coffee in your system, like that to me is fine. Mm -hmm. Or if you, you know, if your stomach doesn't handle coffee that well, cold brew or, or some other caffeinated drink. I, I think that like the NO explodes specifically, cause that's the one I, uh, I, I used to take all the time. Uh, it was, there's caffeine, right? Which yeah. is, I think it's like actually the thing that really gets people kind of addicted to it is like, I, I want to feel like I'm caffeinated going mm -hmm. in, uh, to go work out. Uh, the second thing though, is, uh, there's all of the like oxygenation that's happening in the bloodstream, whatever. Yeah. It's been too long. I've, I haven't looked yeah. at stuff in a long time. Um, but there's like that feeling of the pump, right? right? And to some degree, it almost feels kind of like, uh, you know, it's like a drug high, right? Like right. you get the drug high, like, oh, I need that again. If you go and you work out, I don't know if that actually affects like the training itself as much as it, it's the feeling and it's like tricking someone into like, right. I need this again or not. It, it should impact training. You know, if you can get better blood flow, you know, what's the purpose of warming up? It's mm -hmm. like a lot of it's to get good blood flow. So if you can get better circulation when you train, you should train better. Um, that being said, I think you're right in, in that it does lead to a better pump. And that's what people, you know, to my earlier point for, uh, you know, people misjudging the efficacy of workouts, the pump that people get from a workout is not that well correlated with the efficacy of a workout, but mm -hmm. it's what, what the most proximal symptom is when you're mm -hmm. done training Feels is good. you look in the mirror, you got veins coming out of your arms mm -hmm. and you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. This, I got a great workout in. It's like, mm -hmm. 
you don't know that. You're not going to know that for like several days whether you yeah. got a good workout. It, in. Is is there like high sugar in that stuff or anything that people should be worried about as well? Like in a lot of the pre workouts, like obviously there's the caffeine, there's all the no whatever you know stuff. Um, but is there also like the detrimental from like a diet standpoint where uh, they should be worried? Um, that would probably be one of the least likely time periods that one might worry about sugar consumption. Mm, and I'm you're saying gonna go people, burn it. yeah, cause you're going to go burn it. Now, if yeah. you're diabetic, obviously you have like different issues than yep. uh, somebody who's not, but, um, yeah, if you're going to be consuming sugar, the best time to consume it is right before, right after or during workouts. Mm. Um, you know, will that impact your cravings for, for sugar later in the day? Yeah, it probably will, mm. but you're, you're, doing it at a time where it's actually likely to lead to increased gym output, which mm -hmm. is okay in my book. Uh, you ever heard of Endurox? No. Yeah. You, you didn't know, I, you didn't know I was fucking well skilled here. Take me deep uh, in the game. <laughs> Endurox is, uh, something that a lot of athletes would use, especially like football players and things like that, where, uh, uh it has a, a unique combination of, uh, really high intensity cardio sprinting, all that type of stuff. Uh, but then also a lot of, uh, physical, uh, like combat in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, pushing and pulling and doing all that stuff during practice. Uh, it's all about recovery. Mm -hmm. So you would, uh, I know guys who did a lot of crazy shit before practice, uh, but after practice, basically put the Endurox in water, shake it up, and you drink it on your way to go get food or whatever, mm -hmm. and it's supposed to help you recover. Again, whether it works or not, who knows? Uh, but it was like a hydration and, and a recovery, whatever. And so uh, when I was in college, uh, I don't remember what year in college. Uh, it must have been over 21, given that uh, this involves alcohol. Uh, somebody was making jungle juice. And for those that don't know, jungle juice, uh, you basically have like a, uh, what do you call it? Like um, uh, Kool-Aid tub. Yeah, like Kool-Aid tub. Yeah. I, I actually, I, that's definitely not what they're called. Um, but, but that is what it is used for. Uh, it's like a, uh, 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 like a tub yeah. that you would get with like a, a cap on it or whatever. Get it at Walmart, super cheap. Uh, and you just pour a bunch of stuff into it and you make an alcoholic uh, drink. And so a lot of it is Kool-Aid and, and uh, kind of juices and things like that. Uh, you could see somebody pour a red Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid, then orange juice, then all kinds of weird shit, and then a bunch of alcohol. And so uh, I remember it was uh, in someone's dorm room and they were sitting there making it and it was a football player's dorm room. And all of a sudden he was like looking around, like what else could he pour in there? And he just took an entire uh, kind of um, uh, bucket of the Endurox and it was flavored, it was like watermelon flavor or something. Mm -hmm. He was like, well, this shit's got flavor in it. And he dumped it in. And the only reason why I remember this is because people were hammered. Really? For the entire night, but not like different than what you would expect from Jungle Juice, whatever. Okay. The next morning, no one had a hangover. Because it had electrolytes in it. And so I remember thinking to myself, like kind of joking, but also kind of being like, uh, if I was like actually cared that much, I'd like go look at the science. Uh, I was like, wow, you're actually able to probably pour things into these alcoholic beverages, which prevent the dehydration, mm -hmm. which allow for better recovery, like yeah. do all this type of stuff. Um and so it became like a joke of like, oh, make sure the Endurox is in the jungle juice. <laughs> um, but like now that I think I'm probably a little bit more educated in terms of how this stuff works, like it does seem like there are certain things that people can do if you are going to drink sure. that could at least maybe not reverse the effects or completely mitigate it, but like it could be more beneficial typing of drinking than, hey, let me just go drink a bunch of beer and right. like hope I'm okay tomorrow morning. Right, right, right. I think, you know, limiting mixed drinks is a big one because – you know, I found if I have more than one mixed drink, I'm going to have a hangover the next day. And because it's the juice sugar. plus or yeah, the sugar. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. Um, sugar plus alcohol equals hangover. So Red Bull vodkas are bad. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know about the sugar-free Red Bull, Red Bull vodkas. Not, uh, not, not prepared to comment on those. 
Um, but yeah, you want to make sure you're having a lot of water, mm-hmm. um, because the alcohol will dehydrate you. One thing that I've also started doing the, you know, couple nights a month that I will have a drink is I'll, I'll consider having a little bit more melatonin supplement, uh, supplementation. I take a melatonin supplement nightly. Um, but I know that if I'm introducing something to my body, that's going to dysregulate my sleep. Um, I can either just have a night of shitty sleep or I can, you know, maybe have an extra couple milligrams of melatonin and I'm still not going to sleep great, but I'll probably sleep a little bit better than if I didn't have that. Um, Damn, you just told me, I told you before we started, I had a bad night of sleep. I switched up my tea last night. Mm-hmm. Now that I think about, I was trying to think, what did I do differently? Why did I have a bad night of sleep? I usually sleep like a baby. Why did I sleep differently? The tea that I drink every single night is chamomile tea that has some melatonin in it. Last night, uh, I had run out, and there was another tea. It was chamomile tea, but there was no melatonin, and I bet you that that actually had a bigger impact than I thought. Problem Uh, solved. (laughs) (laughs) This whole conversation is worth just solving my own problems. (laughs) No, but, like, this is, like, actually uh, uh, interesting because, like, there is, like, inputs and outputs, right? And and as you start to learn it, and, you know, I I was – thinking. I'm like, I know I slept worse last night than, uh, in previous nights. Uh, and again, let's just hold constant. Like that is what it is. Uh, you can quickly just revert back and say, okay, I know I need to do this and then I'll get good sleep and and continue. So it sounds like you pretty much know what your nighttime routine is before you go to sleep to make sure you have the best night's sleep you can. Yeah. And and the more regular your routine is for anything, the easier it is to troubleshoot anything, right? Um, if, if you consistently eat and train a certain way and, something changes in your life, it's much easier to say, okay, what did I change? I do the same thing every day. The only thing that changed was X, Y, Z. Therefore, I must change X or Y or Z if Mm -hmm. I want to uh, get back to, you know, where I was. So what do you do before you go to sleep? Um, Well, if I'm in a state where it's legal, I, uh, I will consume some THC. Um, I've, I actually, what is that? How do you do that? Like edibles. Uh, I found that, you know, that's weed for people who don't know. Yeah. Marijuana. Um, now if you say marijuana, they think you're a cop. That's I, I I read the YouTube comments. They say marijuana. It means you're a cop. Okay. Uh, yeah. So if it's legal, um, nothing affects my quality of sleep better than that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think just act like a melatonin type, like it's like almost putting you to sleep a little bit. It just shuts my brain down. Or, or sometimes it speeds it up to the point where it shuts it down. And I don't know if that's like mild ADHD or whatever, but, you know, from the time I was a, a division one baseball player to when I got drafted by the Rockies, played a couple years in their system, my sleep quality just went like this. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to some of the guys about this before we started about how like playing professional baseball, you know, every day can be your last day. And mm-hmm. it's like, can you imagine coming to work or literally any day you can be fired mm-hmm. like all the time, constantly. You're always on the hot seat. And, uh, you know, obviously it, it became challenging for me to sleep under those conditions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, early twenties, you're like, I'll self-medicate, go have a couple drinks or something like that. And then it just makes your sleep worse. Well, yeah. It, it's, it's a temporary solution that ends up with long-term problems. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I found, like, I never wanted to consume weed because I thought, well, you know, it lowers your testosterone, lowers your sleep quality, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, I, like I was in San Francisco, I was going to consume what was available to me in San Francisco. And I just noticed in my late 20s, like, wow, I seem to sleep so much better mm-hmm. when I consume this. And so eventually, like in my late 20s, I just kind of basically stopped drinking like mm-hmm. a couple times a month or something like that. And just, you know, switched over to, to consuming edibles. Mm-hmm. 
And that got my sleep schedule much more regular. Does it lower your testosterone? It may. My testosterone is very average. Yeah. Right. So that's something that that people uh, surprises people where uh, if you look at, you know, you follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram, you're seeing all the food I eat, you know, looking at me with, you know, shirtless and seeing all the abs and everything. It's like, no, my testosterone is very average. And I think that, you know, it could be, I don't know if it's genetic. I never tested it when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it is possible that, uh, you know, introducing THC into into my routine has lowered it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's like, well, do I have any of the symptoms of low testosterone? Mm-hmm. Like, no, not really. So it's like, all right, well, I think it's probably okay. Or, or mid, mid-range testosterone. Yeah. yeah. This episode is brought to you by FTX US. They're the safe, regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets. Trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than the top competitors. There are no fixed minimums, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. Download the FTX app today and use referral code POMP to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. The more you trade, the more you earn. Go download the FTX app today and use referral code POMP. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer, and the 8sleep pod is the ultimate sleep machine. The pod is the only sleep technology that dynamically cools and heats each side of the bed to maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. With the pod, you can start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. What is the result? Clinical data shows that 8sleep users experience up to 19% increase in recovery, 32% improvement in sleep quality, and up to 34% more deep sleep. How do I know it works? I sleep on it every single night, and it works so well that I begged the founders to let me invest in the company. Go check them out today at 8sleep.com slash pomp to start sleeping cool this summer and save $150 on the pod. Again, 8sleep.com slash pomp, and you get $150 off when you use code pomp. This episode is brought to you by Valor, which represents what's next in the digital economy. They provide simplified trusted access in crypto, decentralized finance, and Web3 investment opportunities. Institutions and investors can gain diversified, secure, compliant, and easily tradable access to a diversified set of industry-leading equity products and protocols, all through a single stock purchase on a regulated exchange. They currently are listed in the U.S. under the DEFTF stock ticker and on the Canadian NEO exchange under DEFI. For more information or to subscribe to receive company updates and financial information, visit their website at valor.com. That's V-A-L-O-U-R.com. And when you think about testosterone, like are there things you do to try to increase the testosterone or not really? Just lifting heavy and uh, and kind of high intensity cardio pretty much takes care of it. Yeah. And, and sleeping enough mm-hmm. and not overdoing it. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you an example of a guy named Mason who joined uh, the group training that I run. I started running it about a year and a half ago and it, online group. And he joined. He saw the program. And he'd, he'd been following me on, on Twitter for over a year prior to then, seeing all the food, seeing all the training. And he liked me. And so he wanted to take the next step. He bought my masterclass. He wanted to take the next step and actually have me be his hands-on coach. And so he looks at all the training materials. His first response is, there's no fucking way it can be this easy. He just thinks, oh, this is like an online scam. This guy's like, you know, I don't know if he's taking steroids, whatever, but there's no way that you can train this way and eat this way mm-hmm. and get those results. But he trusted me, fortunately. He trusted me. He did the program for eight weeks. And after eight weeks, he tested his testosterone level before starting Mm -hmm. and he tested it after. His testosterone at 47 years old went from 550 to 880, right? What's that mean? mean? Which is about the same as taking a small dose of steroids. Mm -hmm. Um, And so basically it's the equivalent of getting like 40 years younger, right? You know, the average person who's 60 
goes back to being 20 years old in their testosterone level. And, you know, thinking about what he was doing before, he was training too much, right? He thought he had to, to be in there all the time, you know, can't miss a workout. Small percentage of the populations like this, they, they're hyper-disciplined. They think if they stop training for a day or a week, they're going to like regress to their fat self that they were 35 years ago. It's like, dude, it's not going to happen. And when they start resting more and doing less, they realize that they can train at a higher intensity mm-hmm. and their metabolism and endocrine system re-regulates to where it naturally should be or could be. Mm-hmm. They just never realize that their entire lives. Mm-hmm. Is it worse to overtrain or to not train? Ooh, wow. Polar extremes. It's probably worse to not train. Mm-hmm. Now, well, how extreme are how extreme are we overtraining mm-hmm. is the better question. Ronnie Coleman overtrained, mm-hmm. right? Ronnie Coleman's got 16 screws in his back. Mm-hmm. Is he less healthy than somebody who never trained and is the same age? Mm-hmm. He probably is. Mm-hmm. So if we're gonna if we're gonna go extreme extreme, mm-hmm. then it could be overtraining could be worse. But mm-hmm. overtraining in the the more traditional sense, it's actually really dangerous. You know, I got my best friend growing up. His dad used to run 10, 15, 20 miles like every day. He's addicted to running. And this is true with a lot of a lot of people who are addicted to running. You start looking at, at, at them when they're 60, 65, their joints start breaking down because mm-hmm. they, like, they run on pavement because it felt fine in their 30s. And all of a sudden it, it really hits them hard when they hit 60, 65. Well, this guy used to be killer. Like he'd be running like 100 miles a week in his 40s. And then by the time he hit 65, he ran a, a marathon when he was like 60, 65. And then like two years later, his back gives out. Because it's like his back just couldn't handle the repetitive stress of essentially overtraining for so many years. Mm -hmm. So is he less healthy than somebody who is basically sedentary his entire life? Possibly uncertain. They're both bad. They're both bad. Yeah. Yeah. When you think of um, a lot of the food stuff as well, uh, men and women, any differences or older people and younger people? Or do you think that the diet and training maybe uh, kind of the same thing works across uh, genders and also age? My system, my specific system works better for men and athletic women. Reason being, um, the more muscle mass you have, the easier it is to diet intuitively. The less muscle mass you have, um, you, you kind of either need to eat at a caloric deficit, which I know I hate, like basically go hungry if you want to lose fat, and it's only temporary. Like you don't really have the muscle mass to sustain a powerful metabolism. So you first, in my view, most likely need to uh, focus on building muscle first. Um, What also happens, like a lot of times women around, uh, you know, around their monthly cycle, they'll get cravings for sugar. And it's like, okay, if I'm, if I'm telling people, listen to your cravings and, and be responsible about them, but like give into them slightly, you can't tell somebody who has massive sugar cravings to give into their sugar cravings because that's just going to be the first step to getting them down a path of eating bad stuff. So does my system work for women? Yes, it works for, for some women, but it doesn't work for as many women as it works for men. Mm-hmm. It's much more common for, for men, particularly men who played like a varsity sport in, in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, the closer you are to that, uh, the, the more likely it is that your results will align with all the other people who've had tremendous success with my system. Mm-hmm. What about stress? Like, I feel like, uh, uh, there's times where people are super stressed out and their whole diet training, everything falls apart. Yeah. And I know other people who are like, yo, I'm super stressed out. I'm gonna go to the gym, come back to like a new person, yeah. right? The stress relief. And so how do you think about stress? Kind of Stress is really interesting. And I actually have a, a hypothesis for why people are fat. Uh, like another hypothesis for why people are fat. And it is, what does stress do to your hunger levels? And my hypothesis is 
skinny people become less hungry when they're stressed out and fat people become more hungry when they're stressed Why? out. Well, if you just ask people, you know, cause part of, part of me working with people and training intuitively is like, do you eat more or do you eat less when you're stressed? And typically the people who are underweight eat less when they're stressed. And typically the people who are overweight eat more than when they're stressed. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, uh, your stress hormones will scramble up your hunger signals. For me personally, they make me less hungry. So I have to overeat when I'm stressed if I don't want to lose muscle mass. Probably more people have to be more careful about the types of food they Mm -hmm. eat when they're stressed. But the gym, the gym is the best antidepressant that you can find, right? I got off of the plane. I didn't sleep that well on Saturday night because I had to get up early to fly on Sunday. Um, So I probably slept like five hours or something like that on, um, on Saturday night. First thing I did when I got off the plane in Miami is I went straight to the gym. Mm-hmm. Actually, I went straight to Dunkin' Donuts to get coffee. But then I went straight to the gym after I got mm-hmm. coffee. And I worked out for a couple hours, and I felt great. They, like, say, they say that that actually, uh, especially like uh, red eyes or time zone changes yes. or whatever, If you as soon as you land, you go and you work out, whether yes. it's at the hotel, body weight, whatever, it's supposed to like basically make the jet lag much less? Yes. And I found that like, especially, you know, when I was working in crypto, going to Asia, um, I found that my jet lag routine is like pretty good as far mm. as, you know, it would probably take me about 36 hours, uh, from flying from San Francisco to Hong Kong or Beijing to get acclimated to the time zone there, mm-hmm. 80, 90% mm-hmm. where, you know, a lot of my colleagues, my age, it would take three, four or five days for them to get back on, back on that schedule. And you think, especially if you're uh, a traveling executive where you're taking a lot of, uh, you know, cross time zone flights, like you need to get your body back on schedule as soon as possible. Like that's mm-hmm. crucial. And, uh, and figuring out how to fly and how to train uh, very much helped that. Yeah. Uh, so when you think about um, stress, it feels like a lower stress life is better in general, both for longevity, for uh, regulating what you eat, for being able to train with a routine. Or do you think some degree of stress is actually healthy and good and, and has some benefit? What's well, a balance, right? So if you look at like no stress, mm-hmm. um, a good example could either be people who – who know they're going to inherit billions of dollars when they grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, though their lives typically don't go as well as one might think. Um, or you could look at the rat studies where they're like, Oh, what, what happens if we give rats like everything that they want mm-hmm. and they just don't have to worry about food. They don't have to worry about anything. It's like, Oh, they started cannibalizing themselves and they stopped learning how to like take care of their kids. Mm-hmm. So the human body and the human mind cannot actually exist in a stressless state permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, what you want to avoid is chronic stress. You know, every day I wake up and I'm worried about paying my bills. Every day I wake up and I'm worried about what my boss is going to tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, the right amount of stress is acute measured stress. Mm-hmm. So you go to the gym, that's stress. You're putting your body through a stressful routine, but it's acute. You're not training 16 hours a day, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you're in mergers and acquisitions and you're working 80 hour weeks, like that's not the type of stress that's healthy. If you're going through an intense 30, 60 minutes every day where you, where you can build up to that stressful event and then come down from it, finger to the wind, that's probably the right amount of stress. So you Mm -hmm. can't have too much. You can't have too little Goldilocks. You got to have the right amount. Yeah. Um, and then how do you think about stress in your life? Like it seems like you live, lead a pretty low stress life. And I know you've talked a lot about like monetizing your life. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So you know, the people tell me that I'm really efficient at figuring out what is the uh, shortest 
the quickest path between two points. And, you know, if I want to live a lifestyle, you know, when I'm younger, I wanted to be very rich, right? Because everyone who's young wants to be really rich. And, uh, you know, as I got older, I found that it was a lot easier to build like modest wealth and extreme wealth. Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, if, if I'm 36 years old and I have modest but not extreme wealth, um, well, what would I do if I were extremely wealthy? Mm -hmm. um, I would work out all the time. I would eat delicious food. Um, and I would kind of like go and, and not answer to a boss. Those are kind of the three things that would change uh, compared to my corporate life, if I were really wealthy and it's like, okay, well, uh, if I don't have a hundred million dollars, but I have, I make enough money getting paid to do the things that I would do anyway. Mm -hmm. What's really that different, right? Like I you wake time. up. Yeah. It's like, I, I, I didn't have to actually take the steps to build that massive wealth empire. I do what I want to do with my day and I get on with it. And so the more you can figure out how to get paid for doing the things that you already do, that you're already interested in, uh, the easier it is to make money and the easier it is to enjoy your life while you're making money. Will you become a billionaire that way? Probably not, but you may, because if you're really interested in something, you're probably going to end up hyper fixated on it and learning more about it than the next guy. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I tell people, because I also do, you know, life coaching, uh, business coaching, career coaching, because so much of, of fitness overlaps with mindset. And I did work in tech for 10 years, um, is figure out how to get paid for the thing that makes you weird. Because everybody's trying to find out, find a unique selling point. Everybody's trying to figure out what their point of differentiation is. And it's like, okay, rather than try to be somebody you're not to separate yourself from the pack, look yourself in the mirror and figure out why do all my friends think I'm a total fucking weirdo mm -hmm. and figure out how to get paid on that. Because nobody's going to be able to replicate your weirdness that's mm -hmm. innate to you. Mm -hmm. Like what are some examples of people, like what, what are they weird about that they end up monetizing? Um, it, like let's look at Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Mark Zuckerberg at 21, 22 years old, turned down the opportunity to have Facebook acquired for like a $200 million payout or something like that. Mm -hmm. How many 21, 22 year olds would say, yeah, you know, I'm going to live, I'm just going to sleep with some bros on sleep on a mattress or whatever. I'm kind of building this thing. I'm really interested in building the social network. Mm -hmm. Like very few, probably 99.99% of people, if given a, an offer to sell their startup at 21 years old for like a billion dollars or whatever the offer was, mm -hmm. would take it, mm -hmm. right? So he's weird because, and you worked with him, but he's weird because like how many other people could turn down that much money to build a project that they're that passionate about? Mm -hmm. Not that many. Yeah. So he's, he's getting paid to do the thing that makes him weird, Yeah. right? Or in my situation, like, not that many people are going like not that many people actually want to have abs because mm -hmm. it's just it's a lot it's a lot easier to kind of just not be fat mm -hmm. it's very easy to not be fat it's mm -hmm. a little bit harder to have abs mm -hmm. so most people would be like oh like i'm in good shape like why don't i just go eat these donuts mm -hmm. it's like well that's actually not the approach that got me here what's what's easier is to to apply a sustainable approach day after day and let the results take care of themselves mm -hmm. And so because I was able to do that, I was able to attain the fitness results that I've attained. And all of a sudden I know about this system mm -hmm. that I can teach to other people. Mm -hmm. It didn't require me to go to school. It didn't require me to uh, study for a test, you know, get stressed out, worrying about a grade. It just required me to learn about the things I was interested in. Mm -hmm. Which, which then ends up, you, if you can monetize it, build a business around it, then uh, it feels like a lot of people are doing this now. Yeah. Uh, and starting to understand like the internet's pretty damn powerful. Yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, if you are successful in doing it, uh, you're happier as well. Right. 
I mean, I, I felt like this when I was working in corporate America, like my last few years, I was making a good salary. Like I couldn't tell a, a random person on the internet, Hey, I'm making X. And they'd be like, damn, that's a lot. I felt, I never felt like I was my own person until I start work, started working for myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because especially when you get into like higher income earning brackets, you're always around people who are more successful than you. Mm-hmm. And as a competitive person, you're always going to kind of do some comparisons and be like, man, like I wish I was doing that. I wish I was doing that. And so, you know, I always felt like when I was an employee, if I have to do a performance report or a performance review for somebody on a quarterly or annual basis, I always felt like that was degrading. I always felt like, dude, you guys are paying me. If you don't want to pay me, you don't have to, but like, I don't want to, I don't want to continue to show you why you're paying me the money you're paying me. If you want to stop, stop. If you want to keep doing it, do it, but don't make me go through this. Uh, what I consider to be like a little bit like demeaning process. And I understand why employers do it. I just felt like as an employee, it was a little bit demeaning to me. See, I don't think I felt that way. Like I I I did the quarterly reviews and stuff, right? Like I always felt like, uh, it was like a feedback session. Like okay. m- maybe it depends, I guess, on like who the person conducting it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If but you like, just do it, it can be done 10 different ways. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's like some people do almost do it in a demeaning way where it's like report to me the information and then I will tell you, you know, good job, bad job right. versus uh, maybe I was fortunate in that. Um, like I'm thinking of one specific guy. He, he very much used it as like, uh, okay, let's look at the things that like you feel aren't going well. Yeah. And almost always it was like the things I knew weren't going well. He also was like, yeah, those aren't going well. Let's figure out like how to like improve it. And it was almost like check-in points. But yeah. I guess maybe that's more of like a message to the people who conduct them. Like, right. don't be an asshole. Well, <laughs> right? well in, in the more cynical <laughs> way and and the the way that I came to look at them uh, after working several years in corporate America is oh these are just a, a negotiation tactic because if you look at how promotional processes work at large companies it takes a long time to get promoted from one level to the next level mm-hmm. and oftentimes there's a talent mismatch where if you have there's a lot of people at a certain level who are way more talented than the people who are a level above them mm-hmm. in sports that would take care of itself over three weeks we scrimmage together you guys are better than those guys you mm-hmm. guys are on the starting team but in a corporate setting there's a financial incentive to keep people underemployed or undertitled mm-hmm. because if you can keep some performing at uh, level 10 paid at a level six, then you make more money as a company. Mm -hmm. And so what's, what is an easy way to keep people uh, getting paid as a level six when they're performing as a level 10 is you identify various weaknesses that they have um, at their present level. Say, well, you're not doing that perfectly. You're not doing that perfectly. You're not doing that perfectly. It doesn't matter that the people three levels above wouldn't be doing that perfectly either. We Mm -hmm. want you fixated on the things that make you Mm -hmm. imperfect. So don't ask us for a promotion this year because it's Mm going to take 18 months to 24 months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I've been on the other side of some of those conversations. You're like, I'm pretty sure that's not how this works, but okay, that, that is, uh, that, that's fine. Um, talk a little bit about uh, the content that you put out. Uh, where can people go find it? What What are some of the things if they want to learn more about the fitness or, uh, or diet stuff? Just follow me on Twitter. Um, you know, Alex Feinberg one on Twitter. Uh, a lot of my stuff is uh, hosted on Gumroad, good third party mm-hmm. site. And so, you know, you'll see a couple of links in my profile. If you want to check out my recipes, check out my, uh, my training guide. Um, uh, fat loss system. Uh, and then every once in a while, I'll run a masterclass sale. Keep an eye out for that. Or you can go on Gumroad and just pick it up now if you wanted to. Um, and my DMs are open. So if you have questions, whether you want to find me on uh, Instagram, which is same, Alex Feinberg1, Twitter, uh, I read all my DMs. Uh, I ignore the ones that are just trying to solicit me for money. But if you're not doing that, uh, I will read it and I will most likely reply. Just you you don't time. send one Bitcoin to get two back? <laughs> 
Yeah, I haven't I haven't tried that. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> For just just to the people who have the same profile picture as you. I I, uh, I, I do feel uh, very bad. There's been a couple of times where I've been like in another place. I'm thinking of one time uh, I was in London and a uh, uh, a guy came up to me at an event. He goes, "Pomp." He goes, "Man, we get to meet in person." Like he was like so excited, and I was like, "Oh no, I don't remember who this person is." And uh, he was like, "No." He's like, remember, I'm the guy who sent the money. And I was like, uh, and I was like, what do you mean? And he had sent like just enough money where I was like, oh, like, like I felt like his pain, but not enough where I was like, your life's ruined. Like five right? or 10K or something. Y- yeah, yeah. Like, I, like I want to say it was like 7,500 bucks, like yeah. literally, right? Like it, it was enough where I was like, fuck, <laughs> right? But at the same time, I was like, dude, come on, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> And so he whips out his phone because I was like, what do you mean? And he like, he's like, no, look. And he, and he pulls it out. And it was like expert level scam like sequence like Twitter. They had commented. They said, you know, message me on uh, WhatsApp. Then he had messaged on WhatsApp. Then they had like moved him here and then he'd sent money and like this whole thing. And I just had to break it to him. Like we were in the middle of an event. There's people everywhere. And I was like, hey, man, come over here. And I like, I was like, that's not me. <laughs> and he was like heartbroken, but at the same time, he was like kind of shook. He said, like, what do you mean it's not you? And I was like, that's like a scam. And so, you know, one, just like the social platforms need to clean it up, obviously. But two, uh, uh, I had never really talked to someone. And like what I realized was like they like socially engineered it. Yeah. They, they were able to uh, – there was nothing that they were doing that like would have made it obvious outside of the fact that uh, – if you knew my life and me and like all this right. stuff, like, like it's very obvious, like they had no clue what they were talking about, but they used the social like engineering components of it to literally get this guy to send money. Yeah. I've been like, holy shit. What's up with them moving the conversations to WhatsApp? Like if you, if you're going to scam people, why can't you scam them on the native platform? I, I think it's because on those platforms, what happens is uh, the accounts can get reported uh-huh. and taken away, and then all the conversation, like history, is gone and everything. You, you don't have the connection with the people anymore. Okay. You get them to WhatsApp. Like, I don't think I've ever reported a WhatsApp number. Okay. Right? To like get taken down. So, what they try to do is uh, I think they like pop up, they have an account, like shotgun blast to as many people as possible. Whoever fails the intelligence test and like responds, pull them to WhatsApp quickly. If I lose my Twitter, Instagram, you know, name your social platform account, uh, then they have them on WhatsApp and now they have the, the ability to communicate. Yeah. I started getting some of these texts cause I, I assume there's a data breach that released my phone number. And so I get these, I get a, a text message from someone like a few weeks ago, Hey, are you the golf coach? I'm like, no, I'm a coach, but I'm not a golf coach. Like, Oh, my assistant must've set me up. What are you a coach? And I like reply. And then like three replies later, I'm like, this is weird. Like, can we be friends? Like, why? What do you, you just want to be friends with some random person who you, who you miss messaged? And like, yeah, you know, I, you seem like we could be friends. Let's take this uh, conversation to, to Telegram or to WhatsApp. I'm like, you already have my phone number. Like, what's going on here? So that makes sense. If they bring it to a, a third-party platform, they can't have their initial uh, conversation flagged. I have a friend who, um, his number's definitely out there because uh, he gets all kinds of crazy ones. Now he gets them in, like, Chinese. And, yeah. and like, uh, he gets uh, sometimes random photos. Like, he showed me one. It's just, like, literally, uh, it was just a photo of a woman with a dog. Mm-hmm. N- no, te- like, nothing else, just, like, a photo. And I was like, why do you think they're sending that? He goes, I don't know if they're trying to get me to respond. I don't know what's going on here, but like, I'm not responding. And I was like, I think that's probably a pretty good idea. But he gets one like every day. 
Yeah. And I was just like, I guess that's like some new scam, but I don't understand. There's no links. There's no like request to do anything. I guess it's just like a social engineering. Like, can you just enter into a conversation? Well, I mean, one of the things that we haven't even talked through as a society is you're going to have a lot of old people who are scammed out of a lot of money, right? If we think it's bad now, like I look at some of these schemes, I'm like, Ooh, that almost got me. I almost clicked on that link. Because it's always, it gets you uh, in a fearful state. It's never you're like calm, like, okay, that's a scam. It's more like fraud alert, click that. And you're like, uh, no, don't do that. They're just trying to pull my trigger, pull, pull my buttons or push my buttons. But I think like, man, if my mom, every time I see something like that, I send it to my parents because I'm like, watch out for this. Mm-hmm. Because if I were like 20 years older, I probably would have clicked on that link. Uh, you ever got the physical mail uh, spam? There's some. mail that's come to the office, mm-hmm. uh, and it's like, you know, they, they've got a, a name of a business, they got the address, like all the stuff, and it's basically like, you know, some crazy claim, whether it's fraud alert or whatever, uh, but it's physical mail. It's like, call this number. And so, like, before I call the number, you know, I always go and I'll, like, Google uh, yeah. the number, and it'll just be like, this number is associated with scams, phishing attempts, like, what? And you're like, all right, fuck you guys. But, like, yeah, they hundred percent people are calling that number. Well, a lot of times it's like, guess what happens when you register a business? When you register a business, that number is found somewhere in some database. And so all these, uh, all these companies are like, oh, if we can send physical mail that mimics the look of government mail, people think they need to pay us money and we don't need to get that many of them to pay us money. So if we just say, oh, you know, you make it seem really official and then, you know, maybe one person out of 30, sends a $50, $75 check. It's like, that's actually a pretty effective mail marketing campaign. <laughs> that is exactly what happens. <laughs> yeah. Right. And whether it's fraud or it's just like uh, you owe us. Yeah. I don't know how that's legal, but they definitely send that mail. Right. And the more sophisticated ones you're probably seeing these now, I just, I just started getting them like a year ago is, um, people writing letters that look like handwritten letters, but they're not <laughs> right. And they're like house offers or something like that. It's like, this is Nope, that's a printer. It looks a lot like you hand wrote that, but it's not. But that's gonna op- that's gonna increase your open rate. I understand exactly why you're doing that, and that's why everybody needs to learn marketing. Because if you learn how marketing works, you learn how like all of these scams not to get works. marketed to. <laughs> you learn how politics works. You yeah. learn how like all these scams work. You learn how the education system works. It's just like learn marketing, and, and it tells you a lot of things. The last uh, question that I have for you, uh, future presidents of the United States, do you have any wild predictions as to who could become the president? I think I mentioned to you that I think that in probably 5, 10, 20 years, the best viable candidates are going to be comedians. And Mm. the reason being is, you know, by 2030, anybody who has a public enough image to become elected president will have hundreds thousands of hours of content out there on the internet um, in which he or she almost certainly said one, two, three, four, ten cancelable things, Mm -hmm. right? Well, how do you overcome being canceled? It's like, well, if you're funnier than the people trying to cancel you, they can't cancel you. Like, it's just not going to work. And so- Did you see Matt Walsh? Yes. That video, I'm shocked that video didn't get more play on the internet. Probably got throttled. Huh? Probably got throttled. (laughs) 
You said it, not me. Uh, but yeah, for those that don't know, uh, he basically he had a whole uh, um, he basically raised the issue around a bunch of uh, the child gender stuff or whatever. Uh, put the, put aside what the issue was, but the mob came for him. Yeah, and he made a video, and I remember I was scrolling, and when I saw a video, I was like, "Oh, they got him!" Like, <laughs> here comes the apology, and uh, I saw a comment, and it was like, "This is how it's done." And I was like, oh, God. And I click on it, and of course, he's just standing there. He's like, I will not apologize. Yeah. I will not. And I was like, oh, okay. Because this that's is a, not an apology video. This is uh, like the middle finger to the online mob video. And I was like, wow. They just actually, in some weird way, he just became stronger on the internet right. uh, by not bending the knee or, or, or kind of, you know, uh, falling to their, their calls. And I noticed this around the 2008 financial crisis when a bunch of banking executives who clearly did stuff wrong, um, when they would go in and testify to Congress, it's like, oh, they, none of them are admitting any of the obvious things that they did wrong. I mean, maybe the most obvious, the like extremely, extremely obvious things mm -hmm. they'll admit, but the, the simply very obvious things, they will never apologize. And I started paying attention to how like leaders function. I started realizing like, oh, I'm watching all these presidents, watching all these politicians, watching all these business executives, watching them make mistakes, and then also watching them never apologize for any of the mistakes that they make. And these are all very competitive industries so if apologizing were effective, you would think that some of the leaders would do it, but none of them do. Oh, that's probably because apologizing puts you in a worse position. And it's probably just uh, more profitable or you can be more successful if you just never apologize for something, even if you're wrong, except in extreme, extreme, extreme mm -hmm. outlier events. And I think that's, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying um, Matt Walsh is wrong. I'm just saying the approach he would take would be Probably the correct approach, whether you're right or you're wrong. Yeah, 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 100%. Uh, my two predictions for president, The Rock and Kim Kardashian. Both of them are going to be president. What about Portnoy? No. You don't think he's got it? No. I, it, it's not whether he has it or not. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. I, I, don't, I, I think he likes his life too much. Okay. Right? Like, uh, the, the problem is uh, you have to take one of two approaches. You either have to really, really, really understand the like. Hollywood, like that whole game, which The Rock, there's nobody better in the world. Sure. He's the most recognizable person, you know, globally, all this stuff. Uh, or two is you have to have like decades of experience of understanding how to leverage uh, the attention into like true business, you know, type things. Uh, I think Dave's probably, I don't know, top five on the internet. Like, you know, I don't know if you saw yesterday, he literally tweeted and he was like, yo, Elon, are you going to fix these fucking bots I on your that. shitty platform? <laughs> right. I was like, that's like a hall of fame internet move. Like you, you like only hall of famers know <laughs> right time, right place, tag them like, bam, we're off to the races. Right. Uh, so like, that's like the internet game. But I think we on the internet forget like the rock is he goes to other countries and is like mobbed. Right. Most people we know on the internet if they go to, you know, China, people are like, only like they don't even realize that's a person they should like care about, right? Well, if they're white, they'll mob them because they right. find white people to be interesting. <laughs> but like, but if you look at like a Kim Kardashian, the other thing with her, and people get all worked up about this, but uh, sex tape, reality TV star, entrepreneur, criminal justice reform. The next jump here is like you try to run for a Congress seat, a governorship. Like, mm -hmm. so, there's something in the political realm. And you're a stone's throw. Yeah. If you want to be public facing. But you know, if they want to have influence, they can also influence behind the scenes. 
but they probably want to be public what, 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 What's their business? Yeah. <laughs> <That makes sense. laughs> right. And, and Chris Jenner is like, yo, if my daughter became president, you know what we could do? <laughs> yeah. There seems to be other families that are profiting a lot from the uh, administration uh, uh, seat. Yep. On both sides of the aisle. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it there. All right. Uh, Alex Feinberg won on Twitter and Instagram. I appreciate you coming. We'll definitely do it again in the future. This is awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to transition into a brand new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to thecryptoacademy.io. My team and I have been working with the top HR teams in the industry to develop an intensive three-week training program with over 50 live events. We teach you exactly what you need to know to break into the industry, including live interview prep and resume review. Our students have been hired at over 75 of the world's best Bitcoin and crypto companies. Go to thecryptoacademy.io to learn more. Again, that's thecryptoacademy.io. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with your friends, and I'll see you all for the next episode.